a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. I want to start, as I always do, by thanking the sponsors of my show. And by the way, I'm going to just throw the door open there and say, if you know someone who has a product or a company and would like to have me evangelize for them, put them in touch with me. I'd be happy to uh, to add them to, to the family of sponsors here on the show, which includes uh, Jeff Staples Real Estate, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So we got about two weeks to go. You going to make it? Are we, are we going to be okay? I, you know, I'm... I'm talking with folks uh, from from as many different walks of life as I can. And this is kind of strange, but I actually feel really, really blessed. I have a little side hustle, a part-time job that I do um, in retail that gets me out into the public. And I'm not saying this, uh, therefore, you know, qualifies me to be a commentator on everything that everyone is thinking. But I get a pretty good sense of people's moods. Because in the course of a shift, I'll work with anywhere from, you know, 170 to 200 some odd customers. And, you know, not everybody comes in wearing their shirt, their their sleeve or sorry, their heart on their sleeve. Not everybody comes in, you know, well, if only, you know, Biden would win or if only Trump would win. But you do get a pretty strong sense of just what people's general mood is. And there's a lot of nervousness. And I don't think it's misplaced. I think a lot of folks are feeling a sense of, whew, things are going to get weird. Things have been getting weird. I mean, this has probably been the weirdest year that most of us can remember within our lives. But it's getting stranger. And, and if there is one dynamic that seems to drive this, it's that dynamic of fear. And I don't know why we have such a culture of fear, but I, I know it's it's a powerful motivator. It's a powerful manipulative tool, and it's used by, well, unscrupulous politicians, media sources, yes, even commentators, to try to stampede people in a predictable direction. Now, my goal as your humble host is not to feed your fears. I've spent enough years behind the microphone. I know very well that, uh, you know, when you give people demons to wrestle with, for some perverse reason, it really makes them love you. And this is why some of the most popular, biggest audiences, you know, out there, the the most highly paid hosts that you're going to find are the ones who are best at giving you demons to, to wrestle with. That's not me. My goal is not to build the biggest audience in radio or podcasting history. I want to build an audience of quality individuals. The fact that you're listening to me already says you are a quality individual because you're, you're hearing a message here that isn't based in red state, blue state theatrics, and it's not based in purely partisan rhetoric. It's based in principles, particularly it's based in principles of um, freedom of conscience, liberty, private property rights, free markets, the things that actually make life worth living, 
but you have to understand them. You have to be willing to not only understand those principles, you have to be willing to apply them in order to enjoy those blessings. Now, I found a commentary that I want to share with you. This was actually written a year ago. I'm sorry, a year ago, four years ago in another presidential election. It's about Jesus, politics, and the culture of fear. And it's from T.K. Coleman, who is with the Foundation for Economic Education. This guy is, is an absolute superstar in terms of his insights and his wisdom. One of my favorite commentators of all time. I'll share that with you coming up in a moment. I'm going to go to the phone here, 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. How are you today, Brian? I am well. How are you? I'm good. When was, when was the last time that you went on an airplane and had a steak with like a baked potato and butter melting on it? Um, well, it wasn't a steak, but it was it was pretty good considering I was hungry. It would have been uh, back in... Uh, December, December 31st. Okay, so not too long ago. Yeah. I mean, I went on a trip this weekend and... How, how was that? All you get to is Cheez-Its, a cookie, and water. And pure old hand Oh, okay. And, and of course, I'm sure a lot of admonitions to keep your mask in place, right? Oh, gosh. It was crazy. And then, and then you know, you go to a restaurant... And you can't have a, 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 a menu anymore. Everything, they have a little stamp on the table you, that you put on your phone. And, I mean, I was demanding all the stuff that I wanted. I, I said, I want a menu. And, and the people were getting pretty upset, you know, the, the waiters and stuff. But I said, you know, I, I want a menu. I was like, I don't want to look at this phone anymore. And, you know, just like the continental breakfasts in hotels, that's, that's gone. Now it's a grab bag. You wow. take your bag, and you take it back up to your room. <laughs> oh, this is I not, mean, if you're... You're not making me look forward to traveling anytime soon. If you want to say it's a weird year, yeah. I think uh, there's no doubt it, it's been the weirdest year ever. But, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, when I said that about the airplane, everybody around me looked at me and, like, their eyes went back into a time when... Things were good. They all. Everybody is feeling what you're talking about. It's strange. It's a strange year. It is. I think we're being tested. But here's the here's the thing. I think we're up to this test. We just can't let fear get a hold on us. And that's that's the biggest concern for me. Is I see a lot of fear in people's eyes, and and I want to do whatever I can to help allay those fears. I can't take them away, but I think I, I hope I can help people. Um, cut them down to size to where we can deal with them and face them squarely and realize this doesn't have to be the driving force in our decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think the solution is for everyone to understand that this, this you know, I watched Dr. Fauci this morning on the news, and, and I can only watch him for a very brief moment because, to me, it just seems like it's like a, they're pushing this hoax on you. You know, like you were always saying, and other people say, you know, we're... What have with H1N1 and and all and the swine flu and you know all this te- like I think we're all walking around with these masks on and you know there's just no reason for it and and doing all this stuff I think you're right I think it's a test I, I just don't know how to explain it it's it's they're pushing this on us for a few reasons I think for the vaccine money 
see if they can control you. I think it's the control really- thing. That, in my opinion, it really comes down to control. And, and I know there are people who believe, but the mask, you know, it, it protects me. It protects you. I'm just doing this to be a good person. Well, go on and keep keep wearing it. But in my heart, it feels like this is a test to see, will you comply? Will you allow yourself to be controlled no matter what? And if enough other people are doing it, will you go along with it? And and I don't like being the guy who's the odd man out. But my answer is no, I won't do it if that's the goal. Yeah, it's, it's, this is just, there's been so many pushes towards socialism and i think this is like a a notch higher on the uh ladder as far as getting us closer to it just to see that it's amazing just amazing time i I tell you anyway this is going to be one for the for the history books for sure you're writing some of this stuff down right you have like a personal journal or diary or something like that you know, I don't, and that's probably something I should be doing, you know. I, I, that's a good idea, because the things that I see just blow my mind. You know, it's just, there's so many people that are so afraid of this whole thing. And there's, they're actually, they buy into it. They're, they're buying into what they're seeing on the media. Yeah. They haven't computed it in their brain yet that, gosh, I've been lied to by... Every form of government that I used to seem as trustworthy in the last couple of years, how can you believe this? Well, there's not a lot that I feel very safe in predicting because there's a lot of shifting sand under our feet right now. But, Rob, I can predict this with 100% certainty. If you keep a record or at least you jot down your thoughts about uh, living through this time, I promise you there will come a day when some some of your descendants or people who are related to you will bless your name for having written it down and shared your insights because you lived through a truly historic time and you are their connection to that time. How it was handled. Yep. And, 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 you know, be sure to, I mean, talk about why did you take the stand you took? Let them know not everybody was a sheep because I'm pretty sure that's what the history books are going to say. But we know better. Yeah, we know better. There's there's a lot of people that just don't buy into it, and they just don't want to know anything about it. And then there's quite a few that buy into it. All right, take care, buddy. Okay, thanks so much for the call. When we come back, I want to share with you this uh, this article. Again, this is from four years ago, but it is just as true today. Jesus, politics, and the culture of fear. This is from T.K. Coleman. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by Jeff Staples Real Estate. If you are listening to me anywhere within the state of Utah, whether it's on KTalk, 1640 a.m., whether it's uh, in southern Utah on KDXU or you're catching the podcast, I just want you to know the name you need to remember is Jeff Staples. You can go to jeffstaplesrealtor.com. Jeff is with uh, ERA Brokers Consolidated. He is a marvelous real estate agent, 13 years of experience, and it is a hot market right now. So if you are looking to sell your home for more or you want to buy a home for less, talk to Jeff. Go to jeffstaplesrealtor.com. 
Again, that's jeffstaplesrealtor.com. When you talk to him, tell him, I'm calling because I heard Brian talk about you. Make sure he knows his message reached your ears. So let me share with you a little hopeful essay from T.K. Coleman. T.K. is with the Foundation for Economic Education. I like this guy's take. He, he regularly just has a little short, uh, you know, two or three sentence bursts of wisdom that he'll tweet or post on Facebook. But they are always an absolute gem. And when I saw that uh, I actually had shared this on Facebook like four years ago, this article, Jesus, Politics and the Culture Fear. He says, I don't claim to know exactly what Jesus would do in every situation, but I'm pretty confident he wouldn't let fear and anxiety dominate his life in any situation. And I think this is really timely advice for us. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, I think this is some of the most timely advice you're going to hear. He says, I never recall seeing any verses in the Bible where Jesus was depicted as someone who treated his creative power as if it depended on anything that politicians were doing. Now, he reminds us when Jesus was a baby, King Herod, a politician, tried to murder him. So he had a pretty good reason to live in fear of crooked politicians. When Pontius Pilate, a politician, claimed to possess the authority to determine if Jesus would live or die, Jesus was completely unintimidated by Pilate's claim. In fact, he used the conversation as an opportunity to point out the fact that Pilate's authority was inferior to the source of power that truly governed his life. Now, can you imagine how weak Jesus would have looked if he had failed to turn water into wine or failed to multiply the the fishes and loaves or failed to raise Lazarus from the dead or failed to restore sight to the blind because of some argument like, I can't fulfill my mission to usher in the kingdom of God because these politicians are too corrupt. That's a good point, right? TK says, can you imagine Jesus saying, sorry, guys, I'd love to make some miracles happen and stuff, but we're screwed. Herod's in office. Now, he reminds us Jesus was angry at corruption, but never afraid of it, never intimidated by it. His sense of purpose and power seemed to be defiantly independent of what the rulers of his world thought of themselves. After all this, he dared to say that his followers would do greater things than him. This seems to be at odds with the contemporary practice of walking about as if we're irrevocably screwed as long as the wrong person is in office. If you're an atheist or an agnostic, you can easily file this under more reasons to think Christians are irrational. But T.K. Coleman says, if you call yourself a believer, this observation should give you pause. Do you really believe that your ability to combat evil, perform miracles, and advance the cause of unconditional love is limited to who you vote for? Do you really believe that your purpose, your calling, or your mission in life can only be fulfilled if the right person is in office? Do you really believe that you should feel intimidated by anything that comes out of a politician's mouth? Now, he says you have every right to be passionate about politics and angry about injustice. But you might want to rethink your premises if you find yourself treating politicians as if they are the primary source of power in your life. He says, I don't claim to know exactly what Jesus would do in every situation, but I'm pretty confident he wouldn't let fear and anxiety dominate his life in any situation. In fact, he says, here's an interesting tweet I saw the other day that I'll leave you with as food for thought. It's from Dan Bushell, who tweeted, how fascinating that people who follow a man who rejected political power for a cross are terrified at their own loss 
of political power. Now, I don't know if that gives you that needed boost of strength or courage, but I'm really glad that uh, this popped up on my Facebook memories today and that I was reminded of this. And I tip my hat, as it were, to uh, T.K. Coleman for reminding us of this. And, and you can think I'm weird for what I'm about to share with you, but, but this is from my heart. And this is what drives a lot of, of why I do what I do, how I approach what I do. I believe that we are headed into what will likely be some very difficult times. And I don't say that with any sense of, yeah, and I told you so. <laughs> I think I've tried to be a voice of warning where I can, but I've said it with the understanding that there are some things we don't have control over. And so any voice of warning that I've tried to sound has, has simply been to try to encourage people, be prepared. Know who you are. Know what you stand for. Prepare yourself as best you can, not just in a temporal sense, but spiritually, emotionally. Be squared away and have that sense of direction. Because when things get tough, a lot of people, are, well, you're seeing it around you right now. People are losing their hearts because of fear. Because of indecision and, and loss of direction, or their their hearts are able to be steered in a totally unproductive direction of anger and envy and jealousy and rage, and it does not cause them to become productive people. It just it just gives them you know a reason to lash out at anyone or anything. I believe we're better than this, but everything I do is based on the idea that uh, there's there's a mission. There's a reason for this. And and I'm, I'm trying to say this as clearly as possible because I, I don't want you to think that I am God's gift to radio or podcasting. I most certainly am not. But I have an unshakable belief that God has enabled pathways in my life that have brought me to where I am today to where I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm associating with the people with whom I associate, and I believe there is purpose behind it. And with that realization, that means that every time I crack open this mic, it's not about how can I make you love me? <laughs> how can I become a big star and, you know, uh, get a fancier car and live in a bigger house and stuff like that? Not that I would mind any of those material trappings, but that's not why I do what I do. I believe God blessed me with certain talents and skills, which he has uh, allowed and helped me to develop over the course of a lifetime. I believe that it is my duty in recognizing that there's purpose behind those skills to do what I can to repay to my creator by using them in a way that benefits his purposes. Now, politics is not solely God's purpose. In fact, I, like the article points out here, um, really the, the greatest things in this, on this earth that are accomplished usually happen in spite of and not because of politics or a response to politics. But I have a very strong sense of personal mission in why I do what I do. Strong enough that I encourage those around me to look for their sense of personal mission as well. Because I'm, I'm telling you, I am nothing special. You know that already. If you know me personally, you know. Um, my name should be Norm, because I'm just that average of a guy. But I believe that every one of us has something, normal and average as we may be, that it is essential 
that we discover what that mission or purpose is and that we fulfill it. And I say that with the understanding that I believe God sent us here each with an individual mission to fulfill. And if we will put forth the effort to do it, he'll help us accomplish that. And by little things, you're going to see some amazing and great things come to pass. And there are innumerable ways that good things can happen. So if you haven't got around to figuring out what yours is yet, let me tell you where it starts. Go to your creator and ask. It really is that simple. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, lines are open at 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join in the conversation. Also want to mention Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. I hope you had a chance to bop in there over the weekend if you live in or around the Salt Lake City area. And score yourself some pork loin. Oh, my goodness. I smoked some up. And uh, just I, I have spent the weekend eating entirely too much smoked pork loin and just enjoying every moment of it. But at the prices that you can find at Nicky's, you can enjoy not just pork loin. He's got uh, scads of ribs. He's got uh, this was a cut that I really had never heard of before. Beef clawed heart. It is not the heart. So it's not like, what's this? Some gross, weird cut of beef that nobody's nobody's ever heard of. It's actually from the shoulder. But it's a very, very uh, tender cut from the shoulder muscle. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of half tempted to, to maybe pick one up and, and try my hand at, at uh, smoking one of these. It's, it's like brisket, brisket, but not brisket. He does have brisket as well. He has uh, ribs. Oh, yes. Lots and lots of ribs. Pork chops. New York slabs of Angus beef. Frozen chicken. I'm talking like 40-pound bag or 40 pound boxes of boneless skinless foster farms chicken breast if you're looking to stock up on meat you will not find better prices than nikki's wholesale food warehouse in salt lake city they accept ebt they accept major credit cards everything sold is 100 percent money back guaranteed to get directions i want you to go to the website actually the uh, facebook page because that's where you'll see pictures he regularly updates what's going on there nikki's wholesale food warehouse well worth your time and please as you make your purchase as you're handing over the money tell him i came here to check this out because brian keeps bragging about you which i do all right moving on a couple of different things i wanted to touch on um i haven't talked a lot about covid today and i'm not going to spend a lot of time i'm a little bit curious and just mildly disturbed at the attempts to silence and marginalize medical doctors and health experts who question the official lockdown narrative See, I, I was raised with this understanding. I'm not a scientist, but I was raised with the understanding that one of the cool things about science is it's okay to ask questions, to put forward a hypothesis, to test the hypotheses of others, and you know, to, to have a dissenting point of view. There's not supposed to be this attitude of, hey, shut up, the science is settled. You can't think that. Much less a concerted effort to marginalize or even silence those who would question what uh, some would say is the settled science. 
Well, Dr. Scott Atlas has been a uh, special target of the medical censors here of late. And there's a very interesting letter to the editor written by uh, Professor Martin Koldorf, who you may remember was one of the signatories for the uh, Great Barrington Declaration, which was uh, published just a couple of weeks ago. This is his letter to the editor for the Stanford Daily. And Martin Koldorf says, Dear Editor, in an open letter, 98 Stanford faculty members accused their Stanford colleague and White House COVID-19 advisor Scott Atlas of falsehoods and misrepresentations, claiming that many of his opinions and statements run counter to established science. Surprisingly, the alleged falsehoods are not mentioned, making scientific discourse difficult. Among other things, the letter advocates handwashing, which Atlas obviously agrees with. So what are the disagreements? While anyone can get infected, there is a thousandfold difference in mortality risk between the old and young, and the risk to children is less than from annual influenza. He says using an age-targeted strategy, Atlas wants to better protect high-risk individuals while letting children and young adults live more normal lives. This contrasts with general age-wide lockdowns that protect low-risk students and young professionals working from home, while, high, while older, higher-risk working-class people generate the inevitable herd immunity. Rather, The open letter ignores collateral damage caused by lockdowns. Being a public health policy expert, he says it is natural and reassuring that Atlas also consider plummeting childhood vaccinations, postponed cancer screenings, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, deteriorating mental health, and more house evictions, just to name a few. He says among experts on infectious disease outbreaks, many of us have long advocated for an age-targeted strategy. And he says, I would be delighted to debate this with any of the 98 signatories. Supporters include Professor Sunetra Gupta at Oxford University, the world's preeminent infectious disease epidemiologist. Assuming no bias against women scientists of color, he says, I urge Stanford faculty and students to read her thoughts. And there's a link to it. Again, this is from Professor Martin Koldorf from Harvard Medical School. I don't know if it's of interest to you. I don't know if, it, if you follow it closely enough to even care. But the fact that there is not just disagreement, but there's active attempts to silence debate rather than to encourage open and robust debate. That's a pretty big danger sign in my mind. Anytime someone says that is so dangerous, you may not even consider it. That's when I get the sense. Why are they trying to control what I am seeing, what I'm able, what I'm allowed to consider? Because that's not a responsibility I'm willing to farm out to anybody. I won't farm out to my, my ability to choose what I will consume in terms of news, in terms of entertainment. I won't do it. It's one of the hard lessons that I had to learn because it was, it was an old uh, libertarian mentor of mine who told me, look, either you choose what you see, read, or hear, or somebody else does. Period. And as well-intended as those censors may be, they're substituting their judgment for yours. You don't become a better person by outsourcing your judgment to other people. Just keep that in mind. All right, switching back for a moment to, uh, to the fear that we were mentioning earlier in the show. There's a great commentary from Mike Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center. 
And I thought this was a, this was a good one in in the sense that there are a lot of voters right now very concerned with power, specifically the loss of power. What's going to happen if we lose power? And I think we need to be reminded why principles are an essential part of why and how we vote. Mike Meharry talks about the nature of the federal government in this essay, which you will find linked in the show notes at the com. He says, we flipped the American constitutional system on its head. It operates exactly the opposite of how the supporters of the Constitution said it would. So what type of government did the Constitution create? Is it powerful or weak? Is it expansive or limited? How much authority does it wield? Can it act in any situation or does it have a limited sphere? How you answer these questions will shape your view of American government and guide your understanding of every clause of the Constitution. Now, Mike Meharry reminds us during the Philadelphia Convention, many framers favored a strong national government. In fact, James Madison even proposed a federal veto on state laws. But as the convention wore on, delegates voted down proposals to create a centralized government one by one, including Madison's federal veto. The Constitution that emerged from the convention created a federal government with a few defined enumerated powers. He says the Philadelphia Convention reveals much about the framers' intent, but we find the true meaning of the Constitution in the ratification process. It was there that the people consented to the new system. And by studying the debates, we come to understand exactly what the delegates representing the people thought they were consenting to. The voters in each state were an important part of the ratification process. They elected representatives to conventions convened to approve or reject the document. The debates at these state conventions illuminate their understanding of the Constitution at the time and thus reveal the original meaning. He says, as you'll recall, James Madison affirmed this view of constitutional interpretation in a letter to Henry Lee, quote, I entirely concur in the propriety of resorting to the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation. In that sense alone, it is the legitimate Constitution. And if that be not the guide in expounding it, there can be no security for a consistent and stable more than for a faithful exercise of its power, end quote. So Mike Meharry says many Americans misconstrue the ratification debates, assuming those favoring the Constitution, the Federalists, advocated for a strong central government, while opponents, anti-Federalists, wanted a weaker general government. In fact, virtually everybody agreed, at least publicly, the Constitution was intended to create a limited federal authority, leaving most power to the states. The actual debate revolved around whether the Constitution, as written, would create such a limited government. The Federalists insisted that it would, while Anti-Federalists expressed deep fear that it would not. I think we can see who was right, by the way, in that, in that particular argument. The Federalist Papers, Mike Meharry says, are the best-known source of Federalist arguments. Published in New York newspapers, these essays, written by John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton, laid out key arguments to support ratification and give us a strong sense of how proponents sold the Constitution to a skeptical public. Think of it like a sticker taped to the window of a used car. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. Again, this is from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center, a marvelous resource if you are really looking to understand America's founding documents. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. I'm going to return to uh, Mike Meharry's commentary on uh, what kind of government did the founders give us? What was the nature of the federal government? It's an essay you can read in its entirely, entirety, rather, whew, easy for me to say, by going to the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, this is for the 19th of October. Let's go to the phone, though, 801-331-8113. Chris, thanks for your patience. Welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Brian. Hey, you're doing a great job, and you are using your talents. You do have a radio voice. I will say that. I haven't seen your face. but It's I a face for radio, trust me. <laughs> Well, you're probably not being fair with yourself, but anyway, I think I have seen you. I think you're a good-looking guy, Brian. Don't cut, don't um, sell yourself short in that respect. But anyway, you know, some, one of the principles that I try to share with my fellow Christians is the Christian principle of free will, or in Mormon communities, it's called free agency. And I often thought, why? Why we couldn't have a policy as far as this COVID-19 uh, issue is concerned, where if you want to exercise your free will, free will uh, and take a chance and go to a restaurant, and the restaurant wants to take a chance of you contracting it and dying or somebody in their restaurant contracting it and dying, wh- where is the victim in, in that scenario? We should be accorded our agency and take the chances because no, we're not endangering any unwilling victims in those scenarios. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I I draw the distinction, like, for instance, someone who is feeling ill but chooses to go show up to a gathering of family or go to work, well, I still feel like crap, but I felt like it was my duty to show up. I think that's irresponsible. I wouldn't call them a murderer, but I'd say that was really poor judgment to expose other people. And I'd say that if it was the flu or, you know, whatever, or a common cold, I would just say, you know, don't... Don't go spreading it around. But you're right. People need to be able to choose, and we shouldn't treat people like they failed if, for some reason, they come down with coronavirus. So, and a lot of people say, well, it's not President Trump who's shutting down the country. It's these local governors and mayors. I say uh, Donald Trump has an obligation to articulate constitutional principles where he should, and he may not have constitutional authority, to reverse any of these mayor's decisions or these uh, governor's decisions. But I say he has a responsibility to articulate principles of freedom and constitutionality, and he has failed miserably in that regard. Don't you think, Brian? In some ways, perhaps. But I have to tell you, in other ways, he's kind of surprised me in that I think he has been a, a more staunch defender of some freedoms than, than the past presidents that I can remember, at least within my lifetime. I mean, that's faint praise, but but I I guess what I'm saying is, uh, for instance, I don't know if you saw his July 3rd speech from Mount Rushmore, um, and maybe it was just a politician saying things, but he was speaking in a language that I really haven't heard many presidents since Ronald Reagan use, and I thought, that's kind of refreshing. Well, you see, it's kind of hit and miss, as far as I can tell, because I don't recall him really standing up for free agency or, or freedom of choice. Um, and, you know, I, my history, my, my spiritual history goes back to the, um, the Joseph Smith uh, LDS Saints in, in the, their original colony there in Nauvoo, Illinois. Joseph Smith, as the leader of the church, he appealed to the federal government for violations on the state level. 
And one of the reasons that the Saints had to come out here to Utah eventually is because they could not get redress of grievances. Right. And that was one of Joseph Smith's biggest criticisms of the Constitution. It allowed the states to run rampant over our rights, and the federal government presumably couldn't do anything about it. And I see a similar scenario happening right now, Brian. Interesting. I don't know if you see that? Um, no. Can, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, like the states aren't well, stepping up, or the states are doing the harm in the case of COVID shutdowns, and the federal government should be doing more to stop it. Is that what? Yeah, I, am states, I understanding? Um, a, a lot of constitutionalists think that that there's too much power concentrated in the federal government, and in most cases, Brian, that's true. There's a lot of uh, power that shouldn't be exercised on the federal level. Food stamps, welfare in general. Redistribution of wealth schemes, all those things should be uh, at the state level or uh, preferably, of course, at the private level. Right. But what we're seeing now is is abuses occurring more on the state level and the local level. And the federal government, I mean, we're seeing violations of the First Amendment, violations of the Fourth Amendment, violations of the Fifth Amendment all over. And if nothing else, I think that Donald Trump should say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's look at these amendments that are being violated on the state level. And I thought that's what the 14th Amendment was designed to uh, to remedy, but apparently good, not. Good point. No, and good, I don't good care. point. And let me make one more point in connection. And a lot of people say, well, that's not his responsibility. On the federal level, he can't do, he can't enforce. He's not a... He's not a a local law enforcement agent. Yes, but he can use his bully pulpit to articulate principles all day long, if not as a president, as just a normal citizen who has access to the media on a regular basis. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I, look, I'm not looking for one-size-fits-all solutions, either at the state or at the federal level, but uh, it would be nice to have someone in that bully pulpit speaking clearly to those things. Unfortunately, Ron Paul, I think both times he's run, he's he's really the only person I know of who's held political office who I think held those kinds of views and and could speak to why the the government's power needs to be limited in those areas. But, uh, you know, that's not what the people want. And I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure Donald Trump was necessarily what what all the people wanted, but... um, I guess I, I have such mixed feelings on him. He's not been the monster we were told he was going to be, but he still leaves a lot to be desired. Well, and, a lot, and I hear that a lot, Brian, and it frustrates the heck out of me because I say I don't see Donald Trump even trying. Because here's the thing. I'm just a simple-minded window washer. All I do is wash windows all day and listen to current events like your show. And I figured this out 20 years ago. I quit voting for Republicans and Democrats 20 years ago because I seen, I saw that the pattern was, was it was frustrating and useless to hope that one party or the other was going to save us. Can't the American people see through this scheme if, if an idiot like I could figure it out? Aren't we smarter than that? <laughs> I like your self-deprecating humor, but I, but I get where you're coming from. And I, and I feel the same way about, you know, I get what you're saying, too. Politics is not making things better. Yet we cling to it like it's our only hope. And I think what we do outside of the voting booth, both before and after the election, actually has far more bearing on whether these problems get solved in a way that actually solves them rather than makes them worse. Well, I, like I said, 20 years ago, I went third party, and I don't regret it an ounce. I would like to put a plug in for the Constitution Party candidate for president. His name is Don Blankenship. 
I could talk all day long about, you know, what the Constitution Party represents, but, you know, go out and do your own research. Research Don Blankenship. Research the Constitution Party. I don't give a rat's patootie <laughs> if he never gets more than 1% of the vote, Brian. I'm going to vote for him, and I'll sleep just like a baby. Good for you. No, I appreciate yeah. it. Chris, thanks for sharing your insights. All right, Brian. Thanks for the time. Okay, hope we can talk again soon. All right, we're, we're up against the clock here. There's two articles I would really love to recommend. I've included them in the show notes. One is from uh, Paul Rosenberg. I've, this is the second one I've shared from him today. Why Americans shouldn't respect offices or laws. Now, I know you've heard people say, well, now, you may not like the president, but you've got to respect the office. Paul has some very convincing language from the founding generation itself that describes why we ought not be uh, respecters. And, and this doesn't mean that you behave disrespectfully, but what he simply is pointing out here is, look, the people you elect to public office, they owe allegiance to you, not you to them. He says it's worth saying one more time. We are the primary entities that governments, their offices, their laws, and all they control are subsidiary to us. We do not owe them allegiance. They exist to service us. That is all. And to this attest, Thomas Jefferson, Samuel Adams, John Adams, George Mason, and most of the generation of 1776. This is what American liberty was and what it was supposed to remain. He says anything beyond this bleeds into idolatry. It's a marvelous and very short essay, but I think it's an insight that we are sorely lacking right now. There's another piece that I would really love for you to see. And it is, um, this is from Daniel J. Mitchell. And it's just a reminder, as you go into that voting booth, don't forget the battle isn't between left and right, even though everything is telling you that it is. It's between statism versus the individual. There's a lot of great reading material in today's show notes. I hope you'll find the time to uh, go over to the com. Check out the show notes for October 19th. Please consider subscribing to the show. If you find value in it, consider uh, becoming a regular donor. Thanks again for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.